I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. We had a bumper day of cycling on this Sunday. We had the Vuelta Espana Stage 15, which is a... All, it's all wrapped into the same podcast and podcast players separate on YouTube. Then Britannia Classic, we'll have the Simac Ladies Tour recap on the rest day tomorrow. And, of course, our Vuelta rest day recap with an interview with Jack Haig, I believe is booked here with Benji. As always, the show is supported by LaCole. If you want to check out on Instagram, LaCole put up a post about their partnership with us yesterday, which has been since the show, it's just about its inception, the Giro d'Italia last year. At the moment, LaCole have a sale on and you can use LRVuelta20, that's LRVuelta20, all caps, discount code for 20% off. Get yourself some performance cycling apparel at ridiculously discounted prices. You can check that out at www.lacole.cc and thanks as always to Lacole for supporting the podcast. Vuelta Espana first. It looks like a big GC day. It was not a big GC day, 198Ks. We had a long fight for the break because this profile, 15K is 5%, 9K is 5%, 20K is 5.5%. Descent in the last case on the 8.5K is at 4% for like a steady descent to the line. The first 50 to 70K is a flat or false flat uphill. So hard for climbers who'd be good to get in this break. Uh, but there's some weird stuff going on at the start, Angie, honestly. Well, it kicked off early with – um like a really dangerous break and and some pretty, I don't know, questionable tactics from Bahrain in particular. Yes, certainly. We had, first of all, a group that got away of roughly 25 riders or more even with Sepp Kuzanit. And that's quite surprising. That's actually a very clever thing to do for Jumbo, I would say, because he was four minutes and a half or so behind in GC, which means that he's the closest one in GC in the, in the breakaway. So... Other teams would have to solve it in the peloton, unlike other days. So Yamba would not have to pace if that is the case. And uh, that's exactly what we saw in the peloton itself, because while a Caruso and a Bardet were in the breakaway to go for KOM points, we saw that obviously Bahrain would likely not chase in the peloton after that group with Kuss. But Movistar and Wanti didn't like that, because obviously Wanti wants to keep her lead and not give it away to Sepkas. And Movistar seemed to be unhappy about that as well. But you think that it's okay that Movistar did that and tried to chase down Kuz, or do you think that's a mistake? I wouldn't have paced because if I don't know what Movistar's plan was today. If they wanted to have a defensive day with nothing happening, they had no plans with their satellite riders, Oliveira, Erviti, or Verona whenever they went up the road, maybe just Erviti and Verona, that was purely for those guys to get a staging opportunity. I guess it makes sense because it makes an easier day for them if they actually planned on using a satellite rider, if they're actually trying to use this last mountain stage before the rest day to do something because satellite riders are important. I mean, these are fast climbs, particularly the last one. Like, draft is hugely important. If that was their plan, I don't really know why they're burning their team on the defensive chasing Sepp Kuss. And their risk-reward in terms of winning the Vuelta is the opposite of Roglic. They don't have outstanding time trialists. They're already behind on GC, 
uh, the mountain stages are running out. We now, uh, okay, we, third week is hard, don't get me wrong, but every time you don't try is another day that Roglic, you know, inches towards the red jersey and the, the TT. Why are you chasing Sepkus, who is, I think, before this stage, five minutes behind Iking and a good two minutes 50 behind Enric Mas? So say, say Kuz wins this stage by... I don't know, three minutes. Okay, that's that's not great, but that's a huge effort from him to win by three minutes. He's they, they don't have to chase that hard all day to keep it in closer check. I mean, the guy that won this stage into Marche paced all day and they kept it under three minutes to the win. It's hard to win by more than three minutes. Once you have Coos up there on GC, maybe in provisional red, that creates difficult situations for Yumbo Visma. Does Coos close Lopez yesterday if he's in the red jersey, Benji? Who? That, that's a good question. I think that he would likely not because they would still have the same strategy and Kreisweg would still be pacing in that same group. So when Kreisweg is done, Kuz would end up being the chaser ahead of Roglic still. Even in red? Even in red, Roglic is the leader, hands down, because of the time trial. you got to count two minutes next to that for Roglic in the time trial. So Roglic is leader, even if Kuz is a minute ahead of him in GC, and Kuz would be pacing ahead of Roglic in that situation, and they would do exactly the same thing. The one thing that's different is that they might not pace as hard with Kuz, and they would perhaps lose 15 seconds on the day because they would try and prevent losing time with Kuz on that stage then. I, I always thought allowing Kuz to go up the road, to take time, to maybe create some doubts within Yumbavism. We've seen it twice in the last year. Hindley and uh, Kelderman, it creates difficult decisions. It doesn't make it as you know linear like everyone pays for Roglic. And obviously the most recent example, which Roglic was involved in, is yep. Agacha and McNulty at Basque Country Stage 6. So if Yumbo Visma did the sensible thing and they're like, okay, nice, you've got red set, but um, we don't trust you to hold it even before the TT, then, yeah, it, it doesn't work. But I don't know, Benji. I think it's for Yum- for Movistar to win the Vuelta, they need to do – something weird needs to happen. I, I don't see Enric Mas taking what, – what's he behind Roglic on GC right now? He's behind by 40 seconds. He's going to lose – in the TT over a minute. So yeah. he's got a game like two, th- like three minutes on him plus. You, you've got to have a weird race, weird stuff happening, and I think they should embrace the weirdness. Um, <laughs> embrace the weirdness. Yeah. That's, okay. a sh- that's a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And, yeah, and I think also means that if you want to attack with Lopez up the road, well, Rollis doesn't have his best mountain domestique right there to close it down. He'll have Kreuzweig, but he doesn't have Kuz to close. So that's my no. argument, Benji. Do you agree with any of that, or do you actually think what they did? I don't think it's horrendous, but you think it's a bit defensive. Uh, it's a defensive move, but I don't think it's the end of the world either. So while I do agree with everything you say, I don't think it would have made too much change if, for example, the fact that I think they spent like Erviti and so forth on it only. So it's not like they spent Verona on it because, well, he was in that front group, so... <laughs> oh, no, Eraviti was in the front group at that time. Oh, and okay. Ver- they okay. were pacing with Oliveira or Verona. Okay, I think it was uh, not Verona, but I could be wrong on that one. But still, like, it's not the end of the world. But yeah, it's uh, it's a question that we were able to discuss about. So it surely was a questionable move at some point. But after that, we had some more questionable moves with uh, 
our legend himself, Arashiro, involved. He was setting up moves for Caruso to bridge over to a <laughs> group that he got away because from the group of Gus, six riders got away, including Andreas Kron. Those were at the front. And Bardet and Caruso, who were with Gus, were not in the break anymore. So Caruso, if he wanted to take K1 points today to try and burn the uh, lead of Bardet a bit, then he had to go in the breakaway. So Arashiro started pacing to try and keep the gap at 20 seconds and lower it even because the gap had gone up a bit. And then Caruso went for an attack on a bit of a false flat uphill. And that failed. Everybody started attacking a tiny bit. Gap stayed on 20, 30 seconds. And then Arashiro did it again, but only for like five seconds of pacing. And Caruso launched again. And then it went back to the peloton. And all this stuff is a bit, yeah, it's a bit questionable because it's a bit desperate, it feels like. Because if the gap is 25 seconds, you're not going to cross it alone with Caruso. And he attacked on the left side of the road. And tried to get away and nobody really jumped with him. And at a certain point, the entire peloton was in his wheel again. So they tried to jump a bit too much at that point. So it wasn't working out for Caruso. And he just should have been in the split in the first place. That That's everything <laughs> you can get out of this. And he wasn't. But luckily for the peloton, who still wanted to fight for the stage, perhaps, we had a problem in the first group. Kron actually had a bit of a bike issue and started kicking his bike while riding it. And... That seemed to have caused some confusion in the group because then suddenly two riders were off the front, including Kort and I think Sivakov, but I'm not sure about yes, it. Was. And uh, then the rest of that group got called by the peloton and those two stayed ahead of the peloton for quite a bit, eventually got called again because everybody kept attacking. And then finally, we had our attacking group of the day and that included legend himself, soon to be retired, unfortunately, Fabio Aru, Rafa Maika as well. And also, who the hell was the third rider in that group? Van Heels. Yeah, Van Heels. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you always forget the Belgian riders, Benji. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm now going to wrap up this stage pretty quickly because we've just <laughs> described all the action. I know it sounds exciting, but Rafael Micah went on like an 80-kilometer-plus solo, dropped Aru. He's just riding solo on this stage like Caruso the other day. As, as I said, it sounds exciting, but would you sign up to watch Micah pace on his own for two hours? Probably not. So, um I didn't go see the birds today, but I wish I had. And then behind, Stefan Kroosvijk's in a group with Verona and co. He goes solo. He sits about 90 seconds behind Micah, and that's all that happens for literally the rest of this stage. No one tries anything on the climbs. GC group into Marche, who actually like pacing. Don't forget really. about De La Cruz, man. <laughs> I'll get to – wait, what did he do? Attack later. Yeah, he I'll did a to- small attack on the last, on the last climb, right, with uh, Mankeys on his wheel? Yeah, so in Dimashe, we're doing a really good job. Rain tire remain pacing all the time. And um, Micah goes solo, wins the stage, wins the combativity. Great result for him. Uh, back to his roots, really, winning stages. And I feel, again, I feel bad, but like there's nothing tactical to discuss. He just rode away and cried, so I couldn't close it. Uh, and we knew it was going to be this result after like 35Ks to go. Uh, Dela Cruz attacks on this last climb, as Benji says, 8K, 4%. Nothing's been happening. No one hard pacing all day. And Louis Menkes marks him. Not pacing for odd Christian Eichen. So Louis Menkes like, no, I'm putting my 11th on GC above the guy in currently in the red jersey. And, yeah, instead of pulling it back and controlling it all day, Menkes marks Dela Cruz. And who was the Kaha guy, Benji? Lastra, I think. I'm not <laughs> sure about it. He tried to get the combativity, of course, from Micah, and it almost worked. But yeah, there was a bit of a, an internet battle for the combativity because uh, some Spanish Twitter account decided to organize a mass voting on Twitter 
to vote for JVine in the competitivity website, and everybody voted for it. The backend service of the website went down, and uh, eventually Vine didn't win, and we don't know how. <laughs> so uh, Micah won competitivity, like you said, and uh, not Lastra, which is a bit unfortunate because I feel like that one small attack by Lastra certainly deserved it more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a stage. And then that wasn't the end of some funny attacks. And this is where I, Benji's criticism of Caruso and Bahrain, I think Bahrain... They, they didn't have a good stage today. It was a nothing stage. No. There's no GC action on. They have had no, they've burned poles in the break ahead, who's got there and then promptly lost, no. uh, like touch with it. They've burned Caruso, probably the best domestique they've got left. Landers, like, I don't know why he's still in the race. He's getting dropped before, like, Arno Demar and Jakobsen. And Adam Yates attacks once, marked by Lopez on this 8K 4% climb just before the descent. Like, oh, like, no one's paced to set it up. What's the point in this? He goes again, and then Lopez is like, why am I marking this? Well, why do I care? Like the most he can gain is 15 to 20 seconds. He's 30 seconds behind Bernal, I think, on GC and way yep. behind Lopez. Why am I going to do this effort? And so he stops. And so Yates actually gets a gap. And at that point, it's up to Bahrain to pace. Either either Mater for Haig, like Haig is – you don't want Adam Yates getting close to you before this third week if you can avoid it for no reason, particularly on a stage where nothing's been going on. But Caruso's not there. Maida doesn't pace, and Haig hasn't snapped onto Yates' wheel. So uh, we guess that Coos, Coos basically just slow – or not slow paced, but he just keeps the gap steady behind. We don't have any camera action of Yates, by the way. We see him attack, and then we see him roll over the line later. He gains 15 seconds for free. And it's like it's what Lopez did yesterday, low risk. You're not going to get dropped. You know, low to medium reward, 15 seconds, and your team didn't invest anything. So it looked like a silly attack, but he kind of got a bit of a a bit of reward out of it, and he's a bit closer to. It's not going to really threaten Roglic, but yeah, for for Haig, it's just an unnecessary 15 seconds loss. And I don't know what was your view on it, Benji. Is it really just an irrelevant attack in the grand scheme of things? I think it's an irrelevant attack in the grand scheme of things, but I think it brings more trouble to Ineos, perhaps, because now their leaders are closer together again in GC. So once again, the question arises, who the hell is going to ride for who when one of them, yeah, has to start riding? And now they're back again within 15 seconds of each other in GC, which makes that question happen again. But hey, I guess we'll find out in the coming mountain stage if that comes into play or not, because it has been coming into play in the first week. So. It's not unsurprising that it could be in the next portion, but I, I, I'm not really worried when it comes to Haig versus Yates personally because I feel like I trust Haig more for the third week, but I think I've said that enough that I trust Yates less for the third week. But then again, if all the stages happen like this, then he's likely to survive because like nothing's happening. Yeah, so exactly. he, can have, he can afford to, to do such an attack without seeing an immediate hell breakdown on him in the coming stages if nobody else does anything. And also... Uh, he lost 16 seconds to Lopez and 12 seconds to Haig yesterday on his, that easy stage as well. So not the most enthralling mountain stages, particularly from a GC perspective uh, on this weekend for the Vuelta. The man, who did you pick yesterday, Benji, for the stage? Andreas Kron, but he had that bike problem yeah, when he wasn't the breakaway. and I picked you on So we had, I, I felt validated and I was like, oh, Izaguirre's on. And then, yeah, Caruso just wasn't happy with that breakaway. But fantastic win for Micah, wins the stage, 90, oh, 1 minute 27 ahead of Kreuzweig. Hamilton third, who we didn't see, is in no man's land all day. 
219. Then Yates comes fourth, 15 seconds ahead of a group of Chicone, Ot Christian Eichen, Gross, Chardonnay, Bella Cruz, Mas Lopez, Haig, Vlasov, Roglic, Bernal, Mater, all the GC guys you would expect, Guillaume Martin. So Ot Christian Eichen keeps the red jersey over the second rest day into Marche. I think mean, outrageously good welter. Mike, other question to you, Benji, is Kreuzweig dangling in no man's land. Do you, as you as the DS, I know Addy Engels has said, you know he's he's not there to make uh, actual strategic decisions and communicate them. But if you were the DS, <laughs> what would you have said when it became very evident that he wasn't catching Micah? Well, the problem is that he's riding in second, and I think that's where the problem of decision making lies. Because I personally would have said probably at the top of Mihares already, or even before the top, when it was clear that it's likely not going to happen that he closes down Micah on the climb that he should not be spending much more energy because we know that Kreisbeck is not a good descender, nor is Micah really. He's not the best descender in the world either, but I still rate Micah's ascending higher than Kreisbeck's descending. They were always kind of at the back of the groups when they were descending together in the Giro's in the past. So that's how I rate their, their descending against each other. And Kreisbeck was the one losing the gap while Micah wasn't. So uh, yeah, I uh, would have likely said somewhere for... Oh, Five kilometers from the top of Mijares, ten kilometers from the top of Mijares, even that it was probably a no go to uh to make this happen. And yeah, he kept on going and he kept on riding for second. And the problem is, if you're riding second and you make the decision to wait, and Micah has a crash or something or completely blows up, which was unlikely in my eyes. Well, the blowing up, I can't predict the crash, obviously. Uh, well, then. He could still be in contention to win the stage, and that's the risk you make when you make a decision like that. Is Michael going to crash or not? You can't predict it. So if you say that Kreisberg should wait and he crashes, then you're giving up a stage win. If he doesn't crash and he rides away to victory like today, then you're spending energy uselessly. It's a rest day tomorrow. I wouldn't have told him to slow up either. I think it's, yeah, let him do his thing if he wants to do it. But you can say if you want to stop, you can. There's yeah. no pressure. It's, it's You can make that a rider decision, I think. Uh, but the GC going into the second rest day, odd Christian Eiking, 54 seconds out of Guillaume Martin. Guillaume Martin not able to take a second, I don't think, on odd Christian Eiking since their breakaway. Roglic in third on 136, which is... 24 plus 11, 37 seconds ahead, I thought something like that, ahead of Enric Maas. Lopez is actually a fair bit back. He's about a minute and a half, oh, minute and 28 after Roglic. Haig is another 31 seconds after Lopez. So if we're assuming, which maybe is something to discuss, odd Christian Eichen, Guillaume Martin crack badly in the third week. Haig's only 31 behind Lopez now. Bernal is on 421, which is... About 40 seconds, 45 seconds after Haig. Yates is 13 seconds after Bernal. And this is all now three minutes after Roglic. And then Sepp Kuss on 4.59. Groschartner on 5.31. Uh, probably my maths haven't been too good there. But Benji, oh, Christian Eichen, Guillaume Martin, we don't think they're winning. But they've held on pretty well. I think top 10 for odd Christian Eichen is is very much in play. Yeah, I think so as well. I think that every day that he survives like this, then he comes closer to a higher position in GC. Obviously, his time trial is not looking like it will be insanely good. But still, if he loses three minutes on the time trial, for example, let's think about that. Three. On uh, <laughs> like we're, a bad case scenario, if he loses three minutes on 
on Roglic there, which is actually quite likely based on his True. previous time trial performances. <laughs> so I'm not actually like making this number up. The problem is that we don't know how well he decided to go in those time trials. So that's the counterpoint of that. But if he loses three minutes, then he's currently sitting at the sixth spot in GC, roughly on the level of Lopez. Obviously, I see on the big mountain stage him losing at least one to two minutes on the big guns. And if that is the case, he is finishing eighth, ninth, seventh in the in the Vuelta. And if that is the case, then it's a very good result. I'd say that stage 20 probably suits him better than the big mountain stages, but I feel like they both kind of suit him so far in this Vuelta. So it's hard to say, oh, this one fits better or this one fits better. He seems like he's pretty good on both ends, but they've got two candidates for that. What if they put Mikey's in the breakaway like we've been asking for a uh, a few times now in one of the mountain stages in week three and the break wins that stage and Mikey's ends in top 10 as well and they're finishing seven and eighth in this Vuelta. What a bloody grand tour for Toyota Marche. Exactly. And the thing is to, to come top 10, the guys he's got to beat, it's not Roglic, obviously. It's Groschardner or Vlasov or maybe Koos loses time because he's doing domestique duties and maybe won't have a great TT either. And it reminds me of that Perstelberger TT, Benji, who obviously bigger flat engine, of course. Yeah. But that TT he did at the Criterium de Dauphiné where he came ninth. And it's like it makes you realize most of these guys, if they don't have a chance to win in RGC riders, they probably just don't try in majority yeah. of the TTs they do. And Perstelberger beat Thomas in that T and he came two seconds after McNulty. So on like a rolly, this is a 16K TT. So, yeah, but a different so, rider though. So I, I, I'd yeah. expect a better time trial from a Perstelberger <laughs> if he hadn't time trialed before than for me hiking personally though. And also I don't know if I trust the cube bikes that they have at oh, really? time trials, but I guess we'll figure it out. Jesus, did they did we offer offered to let them sponsor the pod and they said no that's a bit of a deal no, no, no. Benji. They, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I remember there was an argument a few uh a few weeks ago where Baklans came in and spoke about their equipment then uh, the entire belgian media started talking oh, about really? about wanty's equipment and then one of the team equipment first people had to like talk about it that it was actually not that bad and well so there's something there but i don't know if it's actually accurate or not but at least we have some drama about it, so I guess that's fun. That was the Vuelta's second week. What did we predict was one, two, three, Benji? I think we predicted, I said Roglic, Mas, Haig. I think we agreed. Um, yeah, in week two at least. Yeah, it's not I don't want to talk about my initial ones. <laughs> <laughs> the GC on the first rest day was pretty much the same. There has been there has been no GC changes, really, yep. in this As expected, week. really. I know. It's a bit of a shame, but... Third week looks pretty good. But that was the recap of stage 15 of the Vuelta España. Congrats to Rafael Maica for winning. He did a good, I think, a better than I expected performance helping Pikachu in the Tour de France. His last World Tour win was four years ago in the Vuelta. So just like Bardet, he has not won, not just a World Tour race, any race in four years. So a big win for him. Um, they both kind of followed the same career path in the GC Abyss uh, from 27 to 30, sort of, 31 years old. But yeah, great win for him. Now we'll move on to Britannia Classic, Benji. Uh, completely different race. We have Pogaccia here, Alaphilippe, Cosnerfoir, Ben Herman's in good form, Ethan Hayter, the young talent for Ineos, uh, Dion Smith, good sprint, I think did well last year for Bike Exchange, but no Matthews, David Decker, long course. Uh, I think 
is if anyone doesn't know, it's in uh, West France, in Britannia region, 254 k's, and it is rolling short, punchy hills all day. It is very, very hard stage. Matthews won it last year on Sunweb after Niels Echoff led him out. But you were watching it pretty closely, Benji. Who, where was this gravel section and who was like taking control beforehand, managing breaks? Well, before we get to that gravel section, I do want to talk about the initial breakaway being Alexis Gujar, Alessandro De Marchi, Grignar and Hermans because they were still alive when that gravel section happened. They're also still alive, hopefully. Um, and they were ahead with a good two minutes, two minutes and a half even at that gravel section, which was... Uh, let's hope I don't ruin his name. Sautalarin section, 1.4 kilometers, 4.7% gravel section at roughly oof, 70k to go, less probably 60k to go. And that is where everything lit up. And it was Alaphilippe that was making the first move and trying to break it open in the group. And we saw the people that we expected reacting on it, like Apogachar. We obviously saw his gravel skills already in Strade Bianche, so it's not new here. We also saw it, saw it a bit on Plateau de Glier, but that was not that great last year. But uh, here it was looking good. He was following Alaphilippe quite well, and Honoré was able to follow as well. But also Benoit Cosnefa, you're uh, your favorite rider. But you just don't know it yet. <laughs> no, I actually and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, the thing there was that from that group, you'd expect those riders to be a a solid group to ride away, but the likes of a Steven missed the group and they weren't happy with that. So Steven tried again after the gravel section to try and get to that group, but failed to do so. So they ended up putting Trek riders at the front and the gap was up to like a minute roughly between that peloton and the group that got away, including Philippe. They were still behind the breakaway that was falling apart at the front. I think the Marquis was the last one to survive. Quinton Hedman was the second last one. And eventually that group would end up collecting Demarkey as well. But uh, there was one rider in the group that wasn't looking too good. And I think we've seen his pain face quite a few times, right, this season? I gotcha. Well, not, have we seen his pain face a few times? Vaughn 2, UA Tour? Vaughn 2, UA Tour, I guess, true. He doesn't really hide his emotions. Like when Pogaccia is looking bad, he is looking bad. And he fully, he fully cracked today. It wasn't like Vaughn 2 where he's like, oh, ease up a bit, you know, catch yeah. him back later. This was a full, full cracking. And I don't know whether it's because it's over 20 degrees C. I don't know whether it's because... First race back, I think. <laughs> it just doesn't, yeah. Not exactly his AA target this race. Too many pizzas. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's prob- the guy's probably been celebrated after yeah. Olympics. Remember, he didn't go straight home. He had to go to the Olympics and after the Tour de France. So good to see him at least mixing it up, going to this race. Uh, but yeah, the pace was just too much for him. I think, what's on his program next? Is he doing... Uh, European champs, world champs, but I don't know what other races in Lombardia, between. Lombardia, apparently, according to PCS. Okay. So that'll be interesting. Good good warm-up for him. Uh, are you surprised Abenapol didn't do this race, Benji? I mean, he did Brussels Cycling Classic and the um, Droven Kursu one, whatever it's called, uh, around his, his local races, but this is a world tour race. Why didn't he come and do this? I think it's because tomorrow he's starting the Benelux store, but I'm not 100% uh, certain. Yes, I recall him being on the start list, and perhaps it's not ideal to no, go from right. Belgium to France and then from France to Belgium. I don't know what the, the travel restrictions in Europe are at, at all anymore because I can't <laughs> follow at all. But hey, as long as I don't need to travel, it's not a problem for me. But uh, yeah, Evenepoel is not on the start list, but Pogacar indeed was uh, dropping from the group, and it was all of a sudden, like you said, but then 
something happened then. It was Terpstra being attacked by four cows <laughs> on the road, like literally walking ahead of him on the road. He had to literally like pedal 5k an hour to try and get past him. And I don't know where in the race Terpstra was because I really couldn't tell whether it was at the back of the peloton or something. It would be a problem if it's ahead of the peloton. <laughs> so I guess it was behind the peloton that was happening. But um, in past lives, you would have expected Telstra to be there, right? Yeah, about a long time ago. I mean, he actually looked a bit better at the Arctic Race of Norway, yeah. that stage break with Vosley even beat him in the sprint. Uh, if people were, were watching, I had a video on that. Uh, but yeah, they now had a break of two quick step riders, Honoré and Alaphilippe, with Benoit Kosnifroy. Now, Kosnifroy is actually quite fast. He just lost a sprint to Casper Pedersen in Paris Tour last year. I think I think he's very fast, but he has lost sprints to, I think, Brabantse Pale. He lost uh, Matthew van der Poel and Philippe through bad positioning and bad tactics, mainly he decided to leave those guys out, uh, which is a bit risky. But he approached this, I think both approached it in a little bit of a weird way. The peloton, particularly the peloton, uh, but Kozlefrod, most of his strategy was to pull. He pulled with the other two. He would like half attack over the rises and then sit up when Alphalete marked him and Honoré was struggling and then it would come back again and sort of then keep working with those guys. So, like, do you think that was a mistake, Benji? Do you think he just knew that he could beat Alphalete in the sprint or did he just not really have a plan about how to – because what I would have done if I was him would be to just work with those guys and maybe not pull full but give them a pull here and there and then beat Alaphilippe if you trusted the sprint? Or was he worried, if I don't tire out Honoré, he's going to attack me and I'm going to have to start closing attacks? I think that his idea was all right to try at least one attack because if you don't try any attack, you don't know about any form that these riders currently have in that part of the race. If you make an attack and you see Honoré drop, then you know that he's not going to be the best of the two and that Alaphilippe is likely going to be the candidate to go for this stage. And then you can try focusing on one rider a bit more than the other. But the problem is that he kept on riding quite a bit with Alaphilippe in his wheel. And obviously Alaphilippe's not going to take over because Honoré just got dropped by Benoit Cosnefra and Cosnefra turned around and started complaining at Alaphilippe for not taking over. But obviously he's not going to do that. <laughs> it would be the stupidest thing ever if Alaphilippe starts riding there. Uh, unless he like completely has confidence about it. So at that point, when you see that Alaphilippe's not taking over, obviously, then you probably end up just with Honoré back in the group and right with three again. Like you said, that was indeed what I had in mind as well at the moment of uh, that part in the race. And from that point onwards, it was going to be one thing or the other for him. Either he finds a way to drop both of them and rides to victory, which seemed to be unlikely based on the fact that he couldn't drop Alaphilippe there. Either he ends up winning the sprint against both of them, which is also a possibility to win the race. Or he ends up trying this again and only drops one and has the same exact situation. So you either have to drop two or you have to drop zero and go full for your sprint. And he ended up trying the first thing again, right? Because I swear we had another attack on the section where Pitcock attacked last year. And he, uh, he actually looked pretty good there. He just, yeah, he looked he actually looked better than our fleet. And maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe he was trying to get information about how they're both feeling. Um, I don't know. It, it also was risky what they were doing because I think a competent peloton, and there's two teams I want to point out, well, a few people actually. FDJ didn't really pull the gap back. They just preferred to attack with Valentin Madawa. Israel's startup nation would not really pace and then 
tried to attack with Hermans three or four times I saw. And the gap is at 50 seconds with like 15 kilometers to go. And then they try to get at eight kilometers to go. It's at 50 seconds. You're not going to solo bridge 50 seconds. You need to bring it down to 15 or 20 max. Warren Bargui, then on another rise, attacked on one of the longer hills. Gap was at like 55 seconds. It just disrupted. And it just allows Ballerini closes. Ballerini blocks, Catania closes, Catania blocks. And you're, instead of just pulling it close and then actually bridging across. Um, so Quickstep were doing a magnificent job blocking behind with Catania and Ballerini. And uh, Ineos Benji had Luke Rowe, Ethan Hayter, their man for the final sprint. I did not see them on the front once in the last 20 kilometers. I saw Luke Rowe in the group. Now, apparently, Amador Rivera might have paced earlier, but I, I couldn't believe, given how close that, this ended up being, that Luke Rowe wasn't pacing. Yeah, I mean, either end, it's it's kind of surprising that they just didn't take that up because Ethan Hafer was one of the riders I would have expected to have a chance at winning this race if it all came together, certainly, because I feel like his sprint these days is better than Alaphilippe and Cosner Frost, certainly based on what we've seen so far. Ethan Hayter is like the kind of rider that was at Ineos for quite a bit right now. And he's always moving in these races that are not on the forefront, but he's winning in those races. And those races are becoming better and better races. And at this point, he is certainly a candidate for races like this just to win it. And Ineos should start trusting that more. Perhaps Roe couldn't anymore. Perhaps he didn't have anything anymore because it's quite a hilly parkour and... Wow, Roe has done well on hills before in the Tour de France for pacing, but this is a bit of a high-pressure race, and perhaps that was what hurt him the most. But in the end, I would have, uh, I would have uh, expected him to pace a bit more for Hater certainly, and I would even dare to say that he might be a candidate as a rider that could do well at the World Championship parkour. But the problem there is that I don't know how good he is on that length of parkour. Well, actually, this is 251 yeah, kilometers. Yeah, super long. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this proves it. Ethan Hader is my outsider for the World Championships. <laughs> yeah, he's in really, really good shape. And that was surprising. Up front, we had the group still working pretty well together. Honoré kept getting dropped on every rise. He'd come back. And then he, in the last one, he just went full on the front for Alaphilippe because Connor Swift for Ajizer, uh, not Ajizer, Arkas Samzik was closing behind another British rider who's really good in these races, actually. He's 25. He's actually signed through next year, but he's been actually good for them. He won Trobroli on this year. He was closing really, really quickly. So Honoré gets on the front, drills it, basically leads out Cosnefra, who's second wheel. They get onto the, the last 300 metres is a nasty uphill rise. It suited Matthews last year. Alaphilippe tries to get the jump on Cosnefra and box him in a little bit, exactly what he did to MVDP and uh, Cosnefra in that Brabantse Pale I mentioned. But Cosnefra jumps out early enough to prevent that happening and you can just see Alaphilippe isn't able to keep, keep kicking longer than about six seconds and Cosnefra wins this uphill sprint easily in the end ahead of Alaphilippe and Honoré. It's not the full standard because it was only two quick steppers, but he did get the better of the two, you know, the world champ. Honoré, who's good at San Sebastian, won uh, you know, in a group with him as well as Ballerini and the whole Quickstep team blocking behind. Behind, Hater wins the reduced bunch kick for fourth. 13, it was only 13 seconds, by the way, 13 seconds behind. The Peloton had been a bit more coordinated. Swift, then Bonomo, Sturven, Madoua, Pasher, and Giacomo Nizzolo. My question, Benji, is Sturven, does that 
change your opinion on his world champs inclusion in the Belgian team? Certainly. Like the problem with Steven's inclusion for me is that we didn't see him race since the Tour de France. So I would uh, not be able to say whether he would fit in the team or would not fit in the team. And this shows that he is. I think he's, is he also riding Bing Bang Tour? Well, Benelux Tour, it's called now. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't is. know why that changed because the sponsor is gone, I guess. Which he's proves Renko could have done this race. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if he's racing that, then we'll see even more of him. But yeah, he's uh, he's definitely uh, one of the people that should be uh, doing well there. I think that the coach of Belgium also visited um, him and Livigno the other day, but I don't know about him visiting Wout van Aert there, but if he's there, then he might as well visit Steven as well. So I think that he selected uh, as well for the team, and he should be because it's in his hometown, Leuven. So that would be a, a pretty crazy thing to have Steven win the World Championships in a, in that place. But he's rather that is an outsider for it, and I'm not sure he's... a going to be the favorite because Belgium seems to be going all out for Van Aert based on the stories I've heard from uh, the team at least so far. Mate, he can, if you pick him, will he lead out Pedersen or Wout Van Aert? He might get confused and accidentally lead out Naz Pedersen. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of discussions about the Belgian team because there's so many riders you could pick. You could pick Philips and Merlier, but those are two other leaders that you could pick. Now, can those survive the hills? We know that Philipsen can survive the hills. Merlier is a bit on the I'm not sure he can list. But then you've got Avenepool, who's been riding these solos. Sure, it's not against good competition. Well, it's decent competition, but it's not World Tour competition. So you can't really look at that and say, oh, he's going to be doing it at the World Championships as well. But it's a rider that if you don't pick Remco Avenepool for the World Championships as a Belgian coach, and you do not win the World Championships, then you're going to get oh, scrutinized the day after. <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah, some interesting stuff there. And this was a bit of a precursor to that. Some guys trying to tune up for that World Championships race. Good to see Pogaccio back in action and good to see Cosnefra winning. Is this his first? He doesn't actually win that. Oh, he does win that often, but it's his first World Tour level win. Never even won at Dot Pro Benji. <laughs> He's won all these Parry Camembert. They're all named after cheese, these races. He's won. They're all like 1-1, 2-1 French races that he's won. But yeah, wins his first his biggest race ever and i think that is his level he's a top guy i think just sometimes gets uh, sent to the wrong races and i was a bit critical he didn't go to the welter but to be honest asia 2r this is probably a bigger win for them than a, a welter stage really um i'd like to see him what else he doing other races that i've never heard of before that are back back to one one races anyway <laughs> instead of going to benelux but he's or something. probably fits him I don't know if that's at the end of the season. Is that has already passed the season? I don't even know. Which one? <laughs> Party Tour. Oh, yeah, he'll do that for sure. That's later. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's his wheelhouse. But, yeah, I don't, Benelux would have been great for him. But, anyway, that's what he's doing. Uh, thank, that was the recap of the Britannia Classic West France, a one-day world tour race, one by Benelux. One we started with. Yeah, this, that's a good point, Benji. This is the race. Our first ever recap was this race, so has a special place in my heart. Um, as well as Benoit Cosenfraus and, and Michael Matthews, who won that day last year. But we hope you enjoyed the recap. If you want to support the channel, you can like the video down below if you're watching on YouTube or give us a rating or review on podcast players. Until tomorrow's rest day recap for the Welter. Ciao.